I, uh, I filled out my thankful thing today. I want to share with all of you, my friends. I'm thankful for my space pen. It's my favorite object. I, I love this pen. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I so love this pen that I'm like worried that culture will develop to the point where we don't use pens. And I'm saying, Lord, take me before that time because I love this pen. If anyone wants to come and take a look at this pen, I would glad to share my, my joy with you. Uh, I put in, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see, and then I'm not mentioning the person's name. I hadn't seen this person in a few weeks. I saw this person at church. I'm not going to call them out. And then I said, I'm thankful for my main squeeze, Julia. Um, so that's my three things that I'm thankful for. And speaking of uh, Julia, um, she's my Episcopal priest wife, as if I have four or five others. But um, she has lately been bringing me, you know, I, I try to think of myself as like egalitarian, but I have to confess that Julia has been bringing me lately a bowl of granola with fruit on it. Like almost every morning when I'm sitting in my little cubby office, drinking my coffee and doing my little morning routine. And the other day I was, um, I was just oblivious. I was um, absorbed in some New York Times article. It was probably getting my day off to a bad start. And I'm wolfing down the granola. And I think to myself, how did this bowl of granola get in my hands? <laughs> you know, if we can experience love without noticing it, which... Obviously, we can all the time. We can totally experience God without noticing it. So I want to talk today in our little series, what does it feel like to experience God? Like, how might we uh, notice this thing happening more often? Rather than like, how can we get this to happen? But how can we notice this happening more often? Uh, scripture says, in God, we live and move and have our being. Like, that's something to relax into, not strive for so much, right? I mean, like, uh, how hard does a fish work at feeling wet? Um, what if we noticed that and in God we live and move and have our being? We would we'd feel more connected. We'd feel, like, encompassed by something bigger than ourselves. We wouldn't feel as alone if we just took the time to notice notice that. So think about, um, think about a continuum, you know, this is, this is like a God experience continuum. So picture it like going the whole width of this room and uh, call it the experience of God intensity scale. So on, on this one end over here, there would be like the kind of intense uh, experiences of God that make it into the Bible. And then on the other end over here, there would be like breathing and being alive in God we live and move and have our being and it's it's an intensity scale it's not this is not like good experience of God and this is less good experience of God it's just an intensity scale like people you know people who are intense and you're like oh god that's too much for me you know <laughs> and other people who are intense you're like they're terrific i love their intensity you like people who are calm it's not good or bad it just is Think about that scale. Over here, the high-intensity experiences. Over here, the lower-intensity experiences. Um, and today we're going to consider, actually, the visionary experience of Paul. Uh, Saul, as he was known at that time, on the road to Damascus. Very much a high-end 
uh, of the scale, but we're going to draw some inferences from that experience that I think actually apply all the way down and up the scale, right? Uh, so like um, a, a negative example of this, um, I didn't tune into the role anxiety was playing in my life until several years ago I had a panic attack. And I had about three of them, I think, in a year. And that got me tuned in to the fact that anxiety is a thing and it's working on me. And it caused me to pay attention to how anxiety works on me at a much like moderate, low level. I just was totally tuned out to the role of anxiety in my life. I was having phenomenon. I was having different trains of thought that I never labeled as anxiety. It was super helpful to be able to notice myself being anxious long before I was having a panic attack. So in a similar way, we're going to take a look at this, this uh, very intense experience that Paul had on the road to Damascus, but with a view towards like, what is this telling us about um, how we might notice experience of God anywhere on this intensity scale. Reading from uh, Acts chapter 9, I, I just have to make a confession. I forgot to bring the Bible to church. And I looked around. I, nobody at Blue Ocean had a Bible for me to borrow. And so Steve said, I'll go over to the Episcopal church and I'll find a Bible. And I thought, has it come to that? That we, you know, like someone who think of himself as like a Bible-believing Christian having to borrow a Bible from the Episcopalians. It's like, how humbling, how humbling indeed. In the meantime, Saul kept up his violent threats of murder against the followers of the Lord. This is in Acts chapter 9. This is after the death and resurrection of, of, uh, of Jesus. This is the gospel is beginning to spread um, from Jerusalem and beyond. He went to the high priest and asked for letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he should find there any followers of the way of the Lord, he would be able to arrest them, both men and women, and bring them back to Jerusalem. So you'd have to say he was a religious terrorist of sorts. As Saul was coming near the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from the sky flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I'm, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, the voice said. But get up and ride in, and go into the city where you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul had stopped, not saying a word. They heard the voice but could not see anything. Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, but he couldn't see a thing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. For three days he was not able to see, and during that time he did not eat or drink anything. Eventually, he started eating and drinking. Eventually, he could see again, and he sat down and wrote one-third of the New Testament. Not exactly as cleanly as that, but that's, that's the basic picture there. So I, I want to start with the effect of this God experience, that, this intense God experience that Saul had. What was the effect of it? He couldn't see anything with his eyes open. You know, in, in, uh, in the old days, we used to think of... Uh, Seeing is something that just your eyes do, right? We, we almost intuitively do that. But of course, 
you know, neuroscience, we know that the eyes are just like they, they channel the light data to our optic nerve, and then the optic nerve sends, you know, different packets of information to different parts of the brain, kind of like an email, you know, once it goes going around, there's, you know, a little packet over here, a little packet over there, and then it gets reassembled when the, when the thing happens. That's how you see, only your, all that information gets reassembled in the occipital load in, in the back of the head, I think, is where the... That's when you have the wow phenomenon of I see experience. Um, so it's a complicated phenomenon seeing. There, I think part of their discovery of this was the phenomenon called blind sight. Have you heard about blind sight? It's a really cool thing. It's like people who have a certain part of their brain injured, one of the parts that's involved in this whole visual system, that gets injured and they're unable to have the experience that we call seeing but they're still getting data to their brain through their eyes and so they're actually able to function pretty well they can navigate around obstacles and stuff without having the experience of seeing their their brain is doing some of the work of it for them it's called it's called the uh, blind sight and it's kind of kind of wild so i'm not picturing god like striking paul blind i'm picturing Paul has centered his whole life on God in a way that's probably even hard for any of us to understand how one person could just center their whole life on God, like to see everything through the lens of God. It was God, God, God. Paul was just one of those kind of God-zealot people. And he had, in this experience of Jesus, this visionary experience, he said a, had such a reversal of his understanding of who God is and what God is like that is, I picture it like his brain couldn't trust any of its own perceptions for a few days until he had adjusted and it just registered blank on, on everything. So what, what was this shocking, different understanding of God that came to him through this intense vision? And of course, part of it was that Jesus, whom he was not a, a fan of was alive and speaking that certainly would have been but I think it was more than that I think it was that Jesus as the Messiah you know mirroring God representing imaging God approached Paul from a position that didn't seem to Paul at all godlike because it was a position of weakness relative to Paul's strength that was, that was implicit in Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? I picture Jesus like on the ground with Paul and has his boot on, on Jesus' neck and Jesus is looking up, the Messiah, the risen Messiah, mirroring, imaging God, saying, um, why, why is your boot on my neck? Why are you doing this to me? He's speaking, Jesus is from a position of great vulnerability. Paul, of course, in the period leading up to the time when Paul was doing his rabbinic work, um, the, the visions, the understandings of the Messiah, that was a fluid thing that was, you know, moving through Israel at different times. But in that particular time, it was definitely an understanding that Messiah would wipe out the enemies of Israel because, you know, Israel was inundated with enemies. And Jesus here is disarming Paul by presenting himself to Paul as a disarmed Messiah, representing a disarmed God. Uh, this is a God who is in no way in rivalry with us. 
Think about that. What would it feel like to experience a God who was in no way in any kind of rivalry with us? Not even when we are in rivalry with God. Even, not even when we are opposing God. What would that feel like to encounter a God who was in no way, in any way, in rivalry with us? We may be in rivalry with God, but God is not in rivalry with us. You know, in, this is actually a, it's kind of a hidden theme in um, Israel's founding documents. Rivalry is the sign that we're messed up. Uh, rivalry is a sign that we're messed up, disconnected from God, our wellspring. In Genesis 2, remember the first humans eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Seems like a good thing, knowing what's good, knowing what's evil. Seems very religious. And they're doing it, though, in order to what? Be like God. So they're, they're like entering a position of rivalry with God. Then what do you have in Genesis? Unrelenting rivalry between various human pairs. I mean, that's the whole story of Genesis, starting with Cain and Abel, the brothers, Abraham and Lot are in rivalry, Sarah and Hagar in rivalry, um, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, rivalry everywhere. In Genesis, the rivalry leads to violence and it says, I think it's in Genesis 5, it says, the violence fills God's heart with pain and he was sorry that he made the people. What's the only way to end violence for good? It's to like nip it in the root, which is rivalry. Have you ever experienced rivalry? <laughs> you know, like on the butt end of it, like maybe you're in your workplace and you're in a job where a coworker is in rivalry with you. You don't, you don't really want to be in rivalry with that person, but you, you can tell they're like regarding you as a rival. Like, how, how would you notice that? Um, the person is chronically critical of you. Um, you. You make a point in a staff meeting, and he's always poking, you know, poking holes in your point. Um, it's like he's, this person's just dissatisfied with you. Like you get the feeling around this person like you're never enough. Um, this person like tends to point out the worst in you to others and ignores the best in you. And, and you feel just anxious around a person who's in rivalry with you. Often this is how God has been presented to us. Like God is actually in, in rivalry with us. Yes, God loves us. Everyone, you know, God loves us, you know. Right, but he's chronically dissatisfied with us. There's like, even when you're doing great, there's like always room for improvement with God. And, you know, and like you, you have maybe 17 areas in your life that are just going great. But when you think about God, you focus on that one thing that's not going good. That's a picture of a God that you're picturing in rivalry with you. That was good, but, but you can do better. God's not in rivalry with us. Um, you know, of course, we all know that we can have thoughts and feelings that we attribute to God that are not God. Um, there are our own like funky projections, right? You know, stuff inside of our heads that we project onto God, imagining that that's what God's like. Um, 
like we're in rivalry with ourselves lots of time, right? You know, we're having debates in ourselves all the time, and why didn't you do this? Why didn't you, you know, we're in rivalry with ourselves, and we project that onto God lots of times. So in a later retelling of this vision, Paul adds a, char a charming detail. I think this is in, uh, it's in Acts 9, it's repeated in Acts 22, and it comes again in Acts 26, and I think this is from the Acts 26, after Jesus says, why, why are you persecuting me? Jesus adds, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, or it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Um, so Jesus presents himself to Paul as persecuted by Paul, but as Paul's boot is on Jesus' neck and Jesus is objecting, metaphorically speaking, Jesus said, it's, it's got to be hard for you. <laughs> it's got to be hard for you kicking against the goads. It's like you don't seem happy, Saul. You seem like you're under a lot of stress, and it doesn't feel like to me this course of action is working for you. You know, in, in addition to being kind of, I think this was a little bit funny um, on reflection, it's also psychologically compelling, and it's unexpected, and it's kind of brilliant. Jesus is not in rivalry with Paul. So what if this is like the sign that we can rely on that an experience we're having is an experience of God. It's that sense that whoever is interacting with us is not in rivalry with us. So, like, God doesn't threaten to torture us with eternal conscious torment if we don't shape up, you know? That's like a complete misreading of the seven hell occasions in the Gospels where Jesus referred to a garbage dump outside Jerusalem, Gehenna, and that was later translated by the English translators, hell, and that was only later in the tradition imagined as a place of eternal conscious con uh, torment, then no, that's not what, who God is, because the God Jesus reveals is not in rivalry with us. I think I, I might have mentioned, um, maybe I mentioned the, I had a vivid experience of Jesus that um, triggered me to write a book that got me into a lot of trouble called A Letter to My Congregation. And I was reflecting on it, thinking maybe Jesus like, made me do that and it got me into trouble and I should not listen to him. <laughs> you know, like, I, he could have like given me a little... But then I, as I reflected on the experience, and it was one of those unusually vivid things, so I was actually doing a meditation on a scripture that was kind of guided, where the person was using the scripture and kind of giving you verbal prompts and inviting you to, like Ellie does this sometimes uh, in the meditation time. Only this time it was like getting really vivid, and I was walking down a trail, and I was listening to the gravel underfoot crunch, and, and I had a sense of Jesus like a few paces in front of me, and then... It was like in my meditation, he turned around and said, why don't you write a letter to your congregation? And that resolved a, a dilemma I was in at the time. And I, and I was like, oh, I totally want to do that. I would just, that would, that would feel so good for me to like close this gap between this congregation and what I'm thinking about on this, you know, perplexing question. It's like such a relief. And I went and did it. And it, it was, it was a 
may be a bad thing to do. <laughs> no, no, no. It had its downsides, let's just say. No, it was a good thing to do. But Jesus was not telling me to do that. He was just offering it as a, it's kind of, I think of it as like, he knew I kind of wanted to do it, but I hadn't thought of it. And they said, well, why don't you just, why don't you just do it? And then I was free to do it if I wanted to, and I did. Um, Jesus is not in rivalry with us. Now, I want to draw a few more inferences about experiencing God from this encounter. First, the experience of God, even on the intense end of the intensity scale, is murky around the edges. And it's not easy to describe with accuracy. I think Emily may have, may have made this point a couple of weeks ago. So after telling this experience in Acts 9, so that's Luke narrating the experience of Paul, uh, the author of Acts is Luke, uh, he has Paul tell the same experience two subsequent times in Acts. So there's three times in Acts, and then, then Paul alludes to it in Galatians chapter 1. So there's four times this thing is recorded, this one experience. And all the details do not line up. In fact, they, they contradict each other. And Luke, who was writing this, would have known it, and he left the contradictions in. For example, when Luke tells it in Acts 9, the bystanders clearly hear the voice, but they didn't see anything. In Acts 22, Luke quotes Paul telling this story, and here Paul specifically says the bystanders did see the light, but didn't hear the voice. That is a direct contradiction on some pretty salient details. When Paul tells it again in Acts 26, he has them all falling down, in Acts 9, he's the only one that falls down, and he adds uh, embellished details in the, in the later account of the thing. So what is this meant to signal to us? That, well, experience is one thing, and then memory of an experience is another, and all of our experiences that are noted are a combination of the experience at the time and then reflection and memory of it. It's a, it's a mixture and, and memory of an experience is, what's the word uh, you hear a lot? Fungible? You know, like one piece can be replaced to another, and, but, it, you know, it's the same gist, but it's, it's like that. That's how memory works. And this was a vivid, intense experience. I would say as you move further uh, this way on the God intensity scale, the experience of God gets a lot more subtle than that. So describing it is like describing, you hear people talk about the how wine tastes. You know, you go to Costco, um, you know, cheap food for rich people, Costco, and they have all, they have the big, they're the biggest wine distributors, and they have all the little tags, and it's like, it's uh, oaky with grassy notes and uh, a dry finish. And, you know, when I, when I first started encountering this, people talking about wine like this, I was from Detroit, you know, we had Schlitz, Old Milwaukee, Braumeister, there weren't like, you know, you had like crappy coffee all the time. You were, there wasn't, you know, you didn't, but wine was like Boone's Farm, you know, just sweet wine. And then, and then you know, you, get, you come to Ann Arbor and you get ruined and you're drinking wine. And you're, I got to figure that. You know, it actually, if you drink wine over a period of time and talk to other people about what you're tasting, you can identify oaky. 
You can identify grassy. You can identify dry, and it's the opposite of sweet, not sour. You know, and then there's tannins, and actually, you know, they've studied this. If, if you have uh, wine tasters, and they come up with a common vocabulary, you can blind taste the, test them, and they will write down what they taste, and they will all use virtually the same words to describe. So it's not just BS. It's a real thing, but it's a subtle phenomenon, and it takes like time to develop the, the, the vocabulary, and the experience of God is very much, I think, like that. We use words to describe God's experience, but the words are more approximate than precise, and, and that's just the nature of God's experience. Second um, thing that we can infer here is repetition in noting an experience, um, telling the experience, solidifies the experience and secures the experience. Telling it, noting it, like strengthens the experience. So this is one experience that Paul has, and it's told four times <laughs> in the New Testament. Um, you've probably noticed, if you're a little bit older, that the memories you have as a kid, especially as you get older, you realize, oh, I've got like a, a bag of memory tricks that I carry around with me. And they're memories that either I have photographs connected to them, or they're memories that I've told and retold. And in the telling, I've kind of secured them in my brain. You can have an experience, you can even like tell it once, but if you don't tell it again for years, that experience will fade from your consciousness. And so I think a lot of us, especially in a non-friendly uh, spiritual environment like the Western world, where you know, if, you, if you go to the ER and they say, do you hear God speaking to you? You better say no, you know, <laughs> unless you want to be in for three days against your will. Um, you know, we have these experiences. We just barely note them. We don't tell them to any one, and then they fade from our consciousness, and someone gives a talk like this, and you're sitting there saying, I never feel God. I never feel God. No, it's a cultural thing. We're not noting it, and we're not telling it to others. We're not focused on it, and so it fades from our experience. Um, you know, our, our culture is probably about as ner nervous about God talk, God experience talk, as it is about, like, sex talk. Um, you know, uh, Emily and I wrote this book, uh, Soulless Jesus, and we decided uh, uh, not soulless, soulless Jesus, but soulless, it's a long story. Um, and we, we decided that we ought to tell some of our God experiences to illustrate the point. And then when it came down to it, we were like, oh, this feels creepy. We do not want to do this. And we would have to like have conversations with each other. And I would say, oh, Emily, that experience that you had that you told me, you have to put that in the book. She says, I don't want to. And she would do the same to me. And it was like, it was just, it, it was weird. Um, writing down positive experiences that you have that are in the context of God and you think it might be God, that's a super helpful thing to do. Just noting it is super helpful. Third thing, last thing, going to be done quick. God experience tends not to come out of thin air. It tends not to come out of thin air. We, we actually form habits that give God experiences an opportunity to occur. And so um, what's rarely noted about Paul's experience on the road to Damascus 
and it's mentioned every time he tells it, is that it happened at midday. And we think that just means the time of day when the sun is at its zenith. And no, midday was one of the fixed hours of prayer for the Jewish people. So Paul was traveling with his companions. They were all Jews. They'd, they could see the sun was up in the sky. It was time to pause, do their midday prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they, they would have a psalm for the day. It would probably take five or ten minutes for them to do their midday prayers. And in the midday prayers, Paul has this like pow experience. He had been doing midday prayers where nothing like that happened for years, but it was like a landing pad for this POW experience to happen. So I would think of it kind of like, um, like a bird feeder. If you want to see birds, um, put a bird feeder out there. Now, if you put a bird feeder out there, you realize, okay, you're in battle with the, the squirrels. There's a lot of work you got to do to make that thing work. And then it takes a while for the birds to discover your bird feeder. And then you have to be there when the bird is there and pow, then you, oh, there's a bird at the bird feeder. So putting out the bird feeder does not guarantee that you're going to see cardinals and black-capped chickadees and all that sort of instantly, but it becomes the occasion. It increases the likelihood that eventually you're going to see a cardinal or a black-capped chickadee, and then you're going to feel so happy inside of your heart when you do. <laughs> so like what, that's what a worship service is. We're, we're like putting out different bird feeders. You know, every song is a bird feeder. Um, Announcements, I'm not so sure. But Emily, the way you did them today, I think it's totally possible. Sermon might be a bird feeder for some people. Communion is certainly a bird feeder. The benediction is a bird feeder. I think the little meditations that we've been doing after the sermon are a bird feeder. It doesn't mean a bird is going to land at every feeder. If you can come away with one bird, you know, for a church service, that's great. And you, and you notice that, you pay attention to that, it will tend to increase your uh, noticing other God experiences. Quiet reflection, let's, uh, let's try one of these things. Um, that was a pretty good sermon, wasn't it? A little bit boring in spots, but not, not bad in general. I thought the content was pretty good. Um, <laughs> Okay, um, what I'd like to do is um, go back to that earlier verse that we used, in God we live and move and have our being. Um, it's in the New Testament somewhere. I'm pretty sure Paul is uh, pulling that from, like not from the Jewish tradition, but from a surrounding tradition. So scripture is not just filled with scripture. Um, in God we live and move and have our being. So what I'm going to recommend is that we just uh, first do maybe 30 seconds. I'll do a little guided thing to help us relax and just be present right where we are. That can kind of open us up. And then I'll just invite you to repeat that um, phrase over and over again. And as your mind wanders, which it absolutely will, um, just when you notice that your mind is wandering, Return to the focus of that. In God, we live and move and have our being. Um, and, you know, uh, Anthony Bloom, an Orthodox um, bishop, says, choose your prayers carefully. Choose your prayers carefully. So you might want to think just at the beginning, you could do, in him we live and move and have our being. I think that's how it is in the New Testament. You could do, in her we live 
and move and have our being. Did you notice um, Cassie did that in one of the songs? It was just so sweet, you know, like it was he, and then it was she, and then it was she. I just, I had this good feeling. And it's like, oh, like that's really okay. And I thought about my mother, and I, my mother's awesome. And I connected my mother with God instead of my father. It was like, ooh, I like that, you know. Our mother in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your good realm come, your will be done. I've been trying to use that prayer like for a full year instead of the other version of the Lord's Prayer. So when Cassie went she, I was like, ooh. I was like a little bird landing on my bird feeder. I had a good, I had a good feeling. So you pick which version of that you want to do. In God we live and move and have our being. In Him we live, live and move and we have our being. Or in her we live and move and have our being. Okay, let's uh, just get ready to on this by getting in a comfortable position. Maybe put your feet squarely on the floor if you like, or sit up in a way that's kind of aligned or comfortable to you. I'd recommend maybe just taking, as you close your eyes, taking maybe three or four deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. Go ahead and do that, and I'll give you another prompt. And then just call your attention to what you're doing right here or right now. You can do that by just paying attention to how your body feels in the chair. Like pay attention to the weight on the seat, the weight on the back of the chair, the weight of your feet on the floor. Just focus on that for a moment. Be present here in the moment. And then just for the next minute or so, in God we live and move and have our being. Just repeat that over and over. And as you find your mind wandering or distracted, say, oh well, and just return to the focus of that text. A simple way to meditate on the text. In God we live and move and have our being. I'll be back in a couple minutes.
In God we live and move and have our being. Amen. Mm -hmm.